Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Doing Time podcast. I am extremely apologetic uh, for how long it's been since our last podcast. But anyway, uh, I am Eric Williams, professor of criminal justice at Sonoma State University. And my name is Jake Jacob Mermel, and I'm a former student of Professor Williams. And this is the Doing Time pod. Yes, and this is our eighth episode. Uh, as I mentioned, it has been... Uh, we have not been doing a lot of episodes because I was in Europe for 31 days with 22 undergraduates. Uh, we went from London all the way to Greece with uh, a total of nine countries visited during our 31 days. So things were a little bit crazy and Internet service was not great in the very cheap hotels that we were staying at. So I apologize for the fact that we were only able to do one podcast while I was gone. Uh, Jacob, did you miss being able to talk to the air? Uh, no, I just talked to myself mostly, so I, I got my fill. Excellent, excellent. That's yes, what we like uh -huh. to hear. Yeah. Yes. Um, all right, so uh, just a couple of reminders. Uh, you know, obviously, you can follow us on iTunes. We uh, we love the reviews that we're seeing on iTunes. They've all been been really fantastic, and so I, I thank the people who have have reviewed the podcast. You can follow us um, through our Facebook group, which you can uh, ask to join on Facebook. It's uh, Doing Time Podcast. I'm sure you can just search it and find it. Uh, we are also on Twitter, at Doing Time Pod. That's doing with no G. Um, so please follow us there. And so today on the show, we've got, we've got quite a bit to cover. And uh, we were asked by a uh, former student of mine and current Ohio State law student, uh, Christian George, if we would talk about the uh, current death penalty proposition that's on the California ballot and, uh, and talk a little bit about the, the death penalty more generally, which could be a five-hour discussion on my end, so I will try to keep it short. Uh, we're then uh, at the request of, uh, of Kirk Connor. He wanted us to talk a little bit about Hillary and the FBI and why it was the FBI chose not to prosecute in her case. Uh, I also thought we could talk a little bit about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's comments uh, about Donald Trump and her subsequent apology. And Jacob, what is this week's international rant? It's about the new prime minister of the United Kingdom, Theresa May. Okay, so we, we have uh, the second female prime minister in UK history, uh, another conservative female prime minister, and uh, Jacob will give us our t her, her, his take on, uh, on the new PM in Britain right before he takes off to go to Britain, correct? That is, that is correct. And having spent six days in England uh, with Jacob, I can tell you that he is as giddy as a schoolgirl while he is there. That is very true. That that is very true. Yes, hunting down Benjamin Disraeli's statue to take a picture of, taking mm. pictures with Winston Churchill. It's uh, it's rather entertaining. I have to do the conservative tour of the United Kingdom. That's that's kind of what I'm out to do. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's start out uh, by talking a little bit about the death penalty. Uh, generally and specifically the death penalty in California. Uh, Jacob, you, you have the actual language of the new proposition that's going to be on the ballot in 2013. Can you tell us a little bit about it? So it's the voters of California are going to be able to decide whether they want to repeal the state's 38-year-old death penalty. And this is made the November 8th ballot. And it's, it's already had 400,000 uh, signatures 
and that's how it got on the ballot. And it seems pretty popular with repeal. And that's that's sort of where we're at right now. And a former uh, MASH actor, uh, Mike Farrell, is the one sort of leading the charge and is the public face of this uh, repeal. Yes. And also um, the group that is that is working towards the repeal includes the last warden to have um, actually done an execution at San Quentin, a woman by the name of Jeannie Woodford. Wow. Uh, some, okay. Somebody who actually taught for us at Sonoma State. Um, I'm, I, I would say, acquaintance more than a friend of hers. And since her retirement from the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, she has been a, a staunch opponent of capital punishment and trying to get our death penalty law repealed. Now, this uh, a very similar measure uh, was on the ballot a few years ago and 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 barely failed. Um, why do you think this time around it looks like uh, the law is going to get repealed, Jacob? Well, we have 743 inmates on death row right now, and this is making us our state the largest for a um, death row population. And By I far. Think, yeah, and I think people feel, why are they just sitting here? We're not doing anything about it. We've only actually executed, I believe, 13 inmates since yes. the law was enacted. 13, that's it. And I think people are just f- sort of uh, rethinking their idea on the death penalty. Maybe it isn't uh, so justified in certain cases. We've seen these last few years how they found out that people that are on death row, have been in prison for a long time, actually did not commit the crimes. And so I think people are just changing their opinion on it as the time goes on. Yeah, it's been a really interesting shift. I, I started um, – I got really interested in the death penalty uh, probably a little over 20 years ago. Uh, and really started researching it a lot around 1995, 1996. And at that time, it was incredibly popular in the United States. Public opinion polls showed uh, consistently over 70% of Americans supported capital punishment. In 1999 and 2000, we actually executed the highest number of inmates in in, the in the sort of post-Furman era, uh, which means since the death penalty was reinstated in 1976, um, we executed the highest number of people in those two years, uh, in, in 99 and 2000. It seemed like I was, as somebody who was opposed to the death penalty, I was really fighting an uphill battle. And things really seemed to shift uh, about 10 years ago when DNA evidence started proving the innocence of people who were on death row. And um, the governor of Illinois at that time, uh, on his way out the door and on his way to federal prison, decided to overturn the death sentences of every Illinois death row inmate because they had found, uh, I think it was like 12 death row inmates in Illinois were actually no bullshit innocent. Wow. And it seems like that has been the argument and now the argument that shows that it's more expensive to execute somebody than it is to actually keep them in prison for life those seem to be the two arguments that have kind of turned the tide and mm-hmm. and now we're starting to see even people who support the death penalty in theory 
are no longer supporting the death penalty as it's actually practiced today. Well, also, I was reading on the Los Angeles Times, I think uh, maybe one or two days ago, they were saying that and, uh, they hired an uh, independent legislative uh, uh, analyst office to do a little yeah. research on um, the amount of money that is spent in repeals by people on death row. And they said that if they get rid of the death penalty, this, you know, the state of California could save up to $150 million, if not more, yeah. in fighting appeals. Yeah. So and that's, that's really massive. Yeah. I mean, so it really it's it's incredibly costly um, in California. It is, it, you know, if if you actually want a death penalty, California, you know, we haven't executed anyone in 10 years. Um, and so it's not like, you know, you're much more likely to die of old age on death row than you are to actually be executed. Um you know, but it's interesting, even I think in states like Texas, where they actually do execute people and quite often they execute, you know, on average, somebody every two weeks in Texas. Now, it used to be an average of every of once a week. Um, even in those states, you're starting to see people start to reconsider their feelings about the death penalty, in part because of this fear of uh, executing innocent people. And one thing I found very interesting about this uh, measure that's coming on the ballot is also how instead of executing these inmates while they're just sitting in prison, they're actually going to be working. Yes. And the money they get from working will go to the pay for the crimes that they committed, you know, the financial uh, um, decisions at the end of the cases. So I, I, I think that's a interesting reform method. I, I don't know how you feel about that. Well, I mean, uh, you know, right now in, in – very few states. Uh, California has maybe a half a dozen uh, death row inmates that are allowed to work right now. Um, they work as clerks for the the uh, the corrections officers and and actually usually the sergeants who work on death row. So there's a a very limited number of inmates on death row in California who are allowed to work, but in most states, death row inmates aren't allowed to work at all. And and one of the reasons why it's so much more costly to house death row inmates than it is normal maximum security inmates is because they aren't able to get jobs even as porters or working in whatever industries that state might have. Whereas in others in 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 others, you know, other maximum security inmates are allowed to have jobs and those jobs pay very little, but they do actually have some money that goes into a restitution fund for victims, but it also makes money for the state. And so, you know, that's that's another one of the reasons why, you know, just we spend so much more money on the death penalty. Interesting. No, yeah, I, I actually, to be perfectly frank, I don't know as much as you clearly on the death penalty, and I've always been very pro-death penalty as long as I can remember. And it right. hasn't really changed in the last few years, but I have reformed a little bit and my sort of black and white look at death penalty since seeing all these cases where, oh, well, he was innocent. Maybe, you know, maybe we should be a little more careful when putting these people on death row. So uh, I, I don't know. How has your, has your feelings been changed throughout the years? I know you've mentioned that earlier, but uh, do you ever think there's a role for executing inmates? I, you know, here's my I, – I, I've always been absolutist on this issue. Um, you know, I could talk about – you know, the deterrent, the deterrent aspects or, you know, uh, the financial aspects. But at, at my core, I don't believe that a state has a right to take the life of one of its own citizens. And, and, and it has always seemed to me to be a very wrong-minded thing 
to say, well, you killed somebody and our response is going to be to kill you. And uh, if anything, my studying of the system, starting to understand how the legal system actually works when it comes to death row inmates. And it's a, you know, it's a, you know, Kafka-esque does not begin to describe uh, what inmates go through from the time that they're uh. first arrested until they're actually executed. And so that, if anything, made me feel more on solid ground um, that that I thought the death penalty should be abolished. What, what I found most moving, um, you know, Jeannie Woodford, who, you know, is a former warden, no one would ever accuse her of being a squishy liberal, you know, seeing somebody like her come out against the death penalty in part, because what I think the public doesn't realize is that, you know, she was the person who had to actually pull the switch and, uh, you know, that that's going to have an effect on those people. And granted, it, it's the job that they took when they decided to be a warden, but I don't think that they ever really thought about the fact that, look, someday I'm going to have to actually, you know, raise my finger and somebody's going to die. Um, but more interestingly, the, the former director of uh, the Texas prison system, who's a friend of mine, um, Skyped in with my class several years ago, and somebody, of course, asked him about his feelings on the death penalty. And he said, as a moral issue, he was not opposed to the death penalty. He said he was, in practice, opposed to the death penalty. And what he said to them was very interesting, which was, he said, you know, if Texas got rid of the death penalty tomorrow, no one, no one would be less safe. He said, you know, I, I, I looked at my, he, he said this, not me. He said, I looked at my job working uh, for the Texas prison system as my job was about public safety. And if this is not affecting public safety at all, and it doesn't seem to be affecting public safety at all, because it's not like these inmates are going to get out uh, for the most part. Um, he said, I don't see why we're doing it. And I thought that was very interesting that he, you know, as somebody who was that heavily involved in a system that actually does execute people was really like in practice, this is just something that doesn't work and we don't need it. No, that is that is actually very interesting. And that that sort of uh, reiterates what I've been, you know, with myself reading these articles about the death penalty that, you know, you always think, oh, there's certain crimes that you can't fix these people are prone to this behavior violent murderers who've done it multiple times uh child molesters things like that you know they, they'll never be able to reform and so but like you said they'll, they'll probably never see the light of day outside of prison so you know that that is that is very interesting and i didn't think about that yeah and the, you know the most we tend to think that it's the Ted Bundy, yeah, Ted Bundy was executed but that that death row inmates are the Ted Bundys of the world and what I do know through my, my research is actually that's not always the case. Those are the very rare cases, you know, the, the sort of serial killers or the Richard Allen Davies, who was very famous for the polyclass murder um, near where Sonoma State is. You know, those are the kinds of guys that people hold up and say, well, these are the kinds of people that need to be executed. For the most part, the people who are being executed are, you know – Poor black guys who were arrested as an accomplice to a murder and all three of them ended up getting the death penalty, whether or not, you know, only one of them pulled the trigger, but they ended up getting convictions on all three. And wow. normally ending up on death row is a function of having a bad attorney much more than it is of committing a gruesome crime. 
because if you're Jeffrey Dahmer, you get a decent attorney. He gets, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer ended up being killed in a Wisconsin prison, but he, you know, he was sentenced to life in prison. Um, in in uh, Washington, the uh, Green River killer, you know, made it cut a deal with prosecutors so that the death penalty was taken off the table. Hmm. And and so, you know, I, I understand that people feel like there needs to be, you know, sort of an ultimate crime. I, I understand that. But the truth is, if you actually read about the majority of death row inmates, you would not be able to separate them from the other inmates that were serving 40 years to life or 50 years to life because they were part of a robbery when they were 19 years old and the guy behind the counter got shot and killed. And, um, you know, I think that that part of the modern death penalty was supposed to be that the sentences were supposed to be proportional. And I think that that's something the courts really have not spent a ton of time on saying, you know, this is a case where the death penalty is really, really needed, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it. Interesting. No, really, this is very interesting. I've never, I've never thought of it this way. You, you actually are bringing a whole new opinion to me on the death, on the death penalty. That makes my day. Yeah. Well, you know, this is, it, it happens to be, and, and Christian wouldn't have known this when he recommended that we talk about it. It's, it's, I, I actually, when I, when I went back to graduate school, uh, the death penalty was going to be my course of study and, and my dissertation advisor convinced me to broaden my horizons quite a bit and actually look at prisons more generally. So it's a, it's an issue that I feel very strongly about that I've done research on for many years. So like I said at the beginning, you could get me started and I could talk for three hours and so I won't bore anyone with that. But um, hey, I, think, I think one day you should. <laughs> maybe I will. But it's, a, it's an incredibly complicated issue it's a you know it's amazing the amount of time and press we spend on it given that you know nationwide we have 2.3 million prisoners in state and federal prisons and we uh, fewer than 3,000 of those are on death row and so it's it is a fairly small is it really that small amount of inmates oh yeah wow yeah yeah at at the most we were we were approaching 4,000 inmates back in 2000 and really all of the um all of the the sort of innocence project work has made people and has made juries actually less likely to give people death sentences now than they did 15, 20 years ago. So uh, the numbers that, of people that this affects is, is actually fairly small. You know, uh, huh. California has over 700 death row inmates. Texas is the next largest with about 400. After that, it's Florida and Pennsylvania with right around 200. And so, you know, you know, California, we're talking about 700 inmates out of about 120, 130,000 total in the state. Well, yeah, when, so, you, when, you, when you keep talking about these states that you brought up, these all have fairly large population centers. So it almost makes sense why they would have so many because they have so many yeah. people. And percentage wise, yeah. it's probably very, very small. Yeah. And it really is, you know, the 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 sort of big, big three um uh, counties that send people to death row are Houston, LA, and Philadelphia. Those, those are the three counties that send probably more people. I would say those three counties probably send as many people to death row as every other county in the country combined. And, and that uh, makes sort of sense. Yeah. Large population centers, a lot of people, a lot of crime. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Houston, you know, fourth largest city in the country, 
LA, second largest city in the country. You know, Chicago just uh, Chicago sends its its fair amount, but Illinois um, has uh, has a very small death row. So comparatively speaking, hmm. uh, they don't send as many. And and so it's you know it's it, what we had, and I'll, I'll I'll give you a little bit of history, and we can we can move on after this if you would like, but um, you know the death penalty as it is today is 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 a function of the de- the Supreme Court in 1972 actually declared the death penalty unconstitutional across the board. Uh, uh, the case of Furman versus Georgia, it's the longest Supreme Court case in history, declared. Uh, in, for reasons that the justices couldn't agree, um, all, all nine justices actually wrote on this case. So there was no really one opinion of the court, but uh, they had enough votes to actually overturn the death penalty as it stood. All death row inmates at the time, which was a little over 600, had their sentences commuted to life in prison. That's why Charlie Manson is still alive. He was one of those, right? Um, within a year about 30 states had passed new death penalty statutes. And four years later, in 1976, in the case of Gregg versus Georgia, the Supreme Court found that the death penalty, as it was, as the law was written in Georgia at that time, was constitutional. And what the Georgia law, what, how the Georgia law was supposed to be different was that it was supposed to be less capricious than the laws were in the past. Uh, Byron White and his decision in Furman said that the the death penalty getting getting sentenced to death was akin to being struck by lightning, uh, that it was freakishly and wantonly enforced, that it was just random if you ended up on death row, hmm. and so the Georgia law and the and the the laws that followed in the pattern of the Georgia law were supposed to fix that um, by guaranteeing that there was a, a sentencing hearing in every case by guaranteeing an appeal in state courts, which is actually what, why it takes so long to execute people because that initial appeal is guaranteed in all cases, uh, a guarantee of what's called a proportional analysis to see if the, if this case fit other cases, if, if this was right. And, and what the hope was in 1976 was that, okay, you know, this will fix the death penalty so that it is not unfair. And I think what we're, what, what I think we're finding out more and more of is, it, is that we have a system that makes mistakes. And, you know, if you have an imperfect system and you send somebody to life in prison, you can fix that. You know, you may lose 20 years of somebody's life, but you can let that person go. You can somehow compensate them for the time that they've lost. Right. Can't really, you, do, too, can't really do too much if you execute someone. No. And, and so even the guaranteed appeals have not stopped these cases from slipping through the court's fingers. And, um, you know, it seems like the American people are sort of starting at least to shift towards a place where as it's being practiced – uh, they may not be as much in favor. And and I, I guess it, it probably goes in line with world opinion since we're really the last Western industrialized country that still has the death penalty. Hmm. Very interesting. I think we could have done an entire special edition uh, doing time pod of just you talking about the death penalty. Well, maybe maybe one week over the summer we'll we'll get into it a little bit more, or maybe closer to the election. Because I, I didn't prep for this, so I'm just talking off the top of my head. But hey, it sounded great. Could have fooled me. All right. Well, there you go. So, um, 
you know, if you are uh, listening to us in California, and we do seem to have a fair amount of California reader uh, listeners, um, I, I really think that that it's an issue you should pay a lot of attention to before you go out and vote in November. I, you know, my feelings aside, I, I would just like people to become more informed, and I think that, you know. Uh, Prisons, one of the reasons why I really wanted to do this podcast was I think what goes on behind prison walls is sort of foreign to the country. And so I think it's important to talk about these issues more and more. All right. Let's uh, let's move along. What's uh, what's our next All topic? Right. All right. So I guess uh, we are going uh, uh, Kirk Connor wanted us to talk a little bit about Hillary and the FBI Um it's interesting. Uh, it, it seems to have faded a little bit from view uh, uh, since since the initial report came out. Because everyone has a very short attention span. Yes, the country does have a short attention span, and and uh, you know Trump picked a VP supposedly, so that's much more important now, obviously. But uh, the FBI uh, about was it about a week and a half ago mm-hmm. uh, decided that um, in the email investigation of of uh, of a, what is a presumed no- Democratic nominee for no. president Hillary Clinton? You got it right. uh, that in looking at her emails, uh, that that she was essentially they said she was stupid but not criminal. That she used her private email accounts to to give to send classified information to people in responding to emails, which was something she said that she didn't recall doing. Uh, they said it was, it was, there were that not that many occasions. And in looking at, at their investigation, what Hillary Clinton did, did not rise to the level where there was the requisite intent to commit a crime. And therefore the FBI was not recommending to the attorney general to, press charges what do you think you know what i i think let's leave it at that i i'm sick of this sick of this this is ridiculous i i I feel like i'm sure everyone at some point in their political career has done this sent something that they weren't supposed to from their personal email you look at everyone has their phone their ipad their computer they have all this technology i'm sure at some point they messed up and if they say they hadn't i don't really believe them and right. I think we should leave it at that. I, if, if he says she didn't have the intent to do it, let's leave it. We're done. Place closed. Well, it's, and so the day or the day after I believe this FBI report came out, the the Congress, of course, had to get involved. And uh, what they claimed was was that during um, the FBI chief's statement, I'm blanking on his name, but by the way, he was appointed. James Comey. Right. Uh, Comey was a, appointed by uh, W, so he, he is not a Democratic nominee. Um, that in his statement, he essentially outed Hillary Clinton as having lied to Congress. And so there was a four-hour hearing in Congress the next day to decide whether or not, or at least bloviate for a while about whether or not um, uh, Hillary would be charged for with lying to Congress much like uh, – wasn't it Roger Clemens? Wasn't that his eventual it, charge? That was his charge. Excellent. So, um, yeah. So the House Select Committee went on Benghazi had, had brought Hillary Clinton in front of them. She had claimed during that uh, – during her testimony that she had not sent classified emails from her private email account. It turns out they claimed that she was lying, that she knew about it all along. 
do you think Congress should be bringing perjury charges against Hillary Clinton? Uh, you know what? As conservative as I am, I think we should just drop it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so, I'm so sick of this. It is it's to the point of obnoxious. This is all they focus on when it comes to Hillary Clinton. When they attack her, this is always the first thing they bring up. Attack her on other things. Attack her on policy. The emails, the Benghazi thing, that was in the past. Bring up other things. I just feel like the Congress is using this as a political tool, and they just sort of look at you can't trust her, blah, blah, blah. And doing that, yeah, that's all very, very important. But I think they're negating past the fact that they're their nominee is not doing too well and is not attracting a lot of people and they're just trying to divert that into attacking Hillary. That's yeah. sort of how I look at that's how I sort of look at this and I think that these uh, people in Congress are uh, going over the top. You know, they had the FBI director there for like five hours. Hillary was there for many hours testifying in front of them. I don't know. I just think it's getting a little ridiculous at this point. I know it's very important, but come on. I think we have, you know, bigger fish to fry. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I, I tend to agree. I think this is much ado about nothing. I think the FBI did the right thing, despite, you know, what Facebook seemed to say about this. Uh, once again, everybody on Facebook became a congressional scholar. Um, you know, the law requires in order for a prosecution to take place, the law requires a sort of specific intent, uh, mens rea, that, that I, I had intended to commit a crime. And it seems to me that what the FBI director found was that that wasn't there and and that that, you know, she was uh, give her a hard time for for being lazy, for maybe not wanting to log into the you know, she wasn't trying to outstake secrets. Right. Right. And um, that's why I think they should just drop it. They right. established that. And the, if, right. if you don't trust the FBI decision on this, who are you going to trust? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that the people in the tinfoil hats who think that this is a big conspiracy and that you know this is you know the Clintons once again getting away with flaunting the law, I think that that actually what this is more of anything is much ado about nothing. And if she were not a, the if she were not going to run for president, this would all be over long ago. Completely agree. Would have been done years ago or not even brought up at all. And the fact that who her husband is, I think, is another reason for this uh, sort of witch hunt against her. Sure. I for the for the life of me. And and I say this as somebody who is probably going to support her in November for the life of me. I can't figure out what is wrong with this woman that she actually wants this job and to go through all of this bullshit. Uh, egotist. It has to be. I mean, she must have just, you know, I, I guess I wasn't. The person who, from the time I was a little boy, thought, God, I really want to be president. Like, I, I can't remember ever thinking that. And maybe, you know, maybe if you have that and you're close enough that you're, you know, in in the White House as the first lady, that there's something there that just pushes you to do this. But I can't imagine why she would want to put up with you know, at least four more years of this bullshit if she wins. I completely agree with you. I think you have to be a bit of a sociopath to run for politics these days. All the scrutiny, yeah. you're in the, you know, you're in the light, the limelight all the time. Everyone's yeah. attacking you on everything, TV, on Twitter, every, you know, everything. I, I, I don't know why anyone would want to do it. No. And I, 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 I understand why Trump wants to do it because it's just a, it's an ego thing for him. Right. You know, I don't think he actually wants to be president. I think he just wants to prove something that he can win. I think it's just, you know. Well, I read some th I read something on the Hill that he said he'd even be willing not to serve if he won the presidency. So what is this 
what is all of this? Oh, I don't know. Uh, oh. But anyway, I, I, you know, I think I think they're all crazy. But I do think we're in agreement that that the FBI report is. I think they're correct. I think this should be over. I don't think it is over. Uh, I think we'll be hearing about it at least until November and maybe even into a potential Clinton presidency. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And again, the FBI are experts in looking up things like this, not congressmen who have no yes. background in this. So no, but, whatever. You know, yes. OK, yeah. moving along. Moving uh, along. Briefly, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, now known as the notorious RBG for her um, seeming ability not to give a fuck anymore. And and she really has sort of come out of her shell. She's she's still very quiet, but she gives many more talks than she used to. She gives a lot more interviews than she used to. Yeah, you're uh, right. She, she really has. Yeah. She really, has. Uh, really, it's been the last five or six years. She's really uh, come out into the public eye. Uh, she recently gave um, an interview that was in the New York Times, I believe, uh, where she spoke disparagingly about the Republican nominee for president. Um, uh, she – I can't remember what she specifically said. Well, she said um, she would move to New Zealand. She said oh, right, that right, right. He's, he's a fool and an egotist and a liar and, and she, you know, she sort of went on and on. Right. Okay. So, you know um, – and so Trump um, went to Twitter, which is what Trump does when he's hurt, and uh, argued that, that she should step down and resign as, uh, as a justice on the Supreme Court for getting involved in politics. Yeah, I think that was um, a little extreme. But I, I think so, too. <laughs> yeah, but I think she should have just kept her mouth shut. She should have kept these opinions to herself, maybe said it to her friends. I don't think – uh, the New York Times is the best place to say this. You know, the as, as we both know that you know you're supposed to be apolitical when you're on on the bench, and I don't think she should have chimed in about this election. No, and I think that that was, and she did apologize, and I think that that which is I good. Think that was good. Um, I think that that she uh, should have sort of apologized, which is kind of what she did. I don't think know that it was a full apology. It doesn't sound like, but um, and. Uh, you know, the interesting thing is that, you know, you say that about justices being apolitical. It wasn't that long ago that we had a sitting associate justice running for president. Uh, that was in the 1930s. We had a former president who became the chief justice, uh, former president and chief justice Taft. Right. Uh, William O. Douglas was uh, almost nominated to run for vice president in both 1940 and 1944 and really was Roosevelt's choice in 1944. But the democratic machine chose Truman ahead of him. Uh, Owen Roberts uh, in 1936 was presumed to be a potential Republican nominee for president, but ended up not happening. So, you know, this idea that justices shouldn't be involved in politics actually is a more recent notion um, uh, justices used to be heavily involved in politics. It's only been lately that we have this idea that they should be somehow, quote unquote, above politics. Um, but we do live in the world we live in now. And so I, I agree. I don't think she should have said it in the first place. Wow. Look at that. We've agreed on two things today. That's amazing, uh, and I and I think I've, I I think I can win you win you over on the death penalty one, but we'll have to work on that for later. Um, uh, maybe another time. I mean, I, I 
going to Hebrew school all my life and studying stuff like that, uh, you know, studying Judaism, I've always been very pro-death penalty because of it, because it, you know, it does condone it in certain cases. So that's sort of where I've gotten my opinion from it. Although the, you know, the Talmudic law, now that we're going to okay. go way off and lose everybody, yep. um, it, although it did open the door for the death penalty, you had to have two eyewitnesses to a crime in order to have the death penalty, right? which made it almost impossible to ever actually execute anyone. But it didn't opt it out from being no, used. But so, I do find that yeah. interesting. That, that, that is interesting. Made it nearly impossible. But anyway, that's we're going down a rabbit hole. That's that I'm for sure a, nobody's that, interested. Yeah, that's for a different uh, different podcast. All right. So moving along, I, I was extremely disappointed this week. I was hoping Boris Johnson is and his hair <laughs> were going to be the new prime minister of 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 Britain. Uh, anyone who doesn't know Boris Johnson is the former, very flamboyant former mayor of London, very entertaining, very funny, and the new foreign minister. But instead, Jacob, tell us what happened. Well, instead, we got a phenomenal technocrat in the shape of Theresa May. She is the MP for Maidenhead, which is part of the Tory-held southern part of England. And she's a phenomenal parliamentarian. She's been in parliament since 1997. She served in the shadow governments of several different conservative leaders, you know, very well-respected ones, Ian, uh, Ian Duncan Smith, uh, Michael Howard, William Hague, and David Cameron as well. You know, she's just a fantastic parliamentarian. You hardly hear a h- bad thing about her. She's very, very well-respected on both sides of the, of the, uh, the chambers, which is hard to find these days, really. And she actually describes herself as a one-nation conservative, which is something I really admire about her. This is sort of the conservative philosophy founded by Benjamin Disraeli. And what this is is she's trying to attract more working-class individuals to the Toryism, not just the wealthy upper echelons of English society that it used to be before Disraeli. And I think that's one of the reasons she's so appealing to so many English people because, look, at she's not trying to help a very select few and the, the House of Lords. She really is there to help everyone in England and use conservative values and ideologies uh, to do that. I think she's a phenomenal parliamentarian. Okay. And you said, uh, one of the things you said at the beginning, which some people, if it wasn't coming from you, I would think that you meant it in a negative way. You said she is an excellent technocrat. Oh, no, I've Um, always used technocrat in a high sense. She's a great elected official. She knows how to do her jobs well, and she's just fantastic at getting things done and working with the bureaucracy that is at Westminster. And I, I, I think I put that in the highest sense. And, and it, I also think it's really important. I, th- I think that word was important to use in terms of the job that she has ahead of her over the next two years. Exactly. Exactly. Which is explain to everybody a little bit about what, you know, now that the referendum has happened, what, what is the process now for Britain actually pulling out of the EU? Right. So they actually need to, and I'm forgetting the exact name of it but they article need to, 50 thank you appreciate yeah. that sure uh she really now she needs to initiate that and what that means is ties are severed and then they're going to start doing the process of recreating a relationship with the continent what a lot of people are saying england needs to do is sort of build a similar situation to what norway has norway is not a part of the european union but almost all their businesses are involved with europe and they have a great relationship and trade relationship with europe also, Norway, however, controls their, their waters, their fishing waters and their maritime laws, much like England wants to. They control 
uh, import and exports of food, which is another big thing that England wants to be in charge of because the British farmer has been uh, wrecked with some of these EU policies. And also they control their borders, which is what England really wanted. Uh, that was you know, a major part of the Brexit. So she's going to have to now carve out with uh, the European Union in Brussels and Frankfurt what, what, this, you know, what the future is between these two parties. And I think she's a great person to have this, to, to be able to do this for the uh, United Kingdom. And this is, I mean, it's really, this is going to be, you know, incredibly important. And, and, and I think Norway is a good example. I think um, Switzerland's probably a good example as well. That, See, Switzerland's um, interesting because they're kind of a-holes when it comes to the European Union because they're they right be. in the middle of it. They're yeah. right in the middle of it. But they have some of the strictest immigration laws of anyone in Europe. They have some of the strictest, uh, you know, financial laws of Europe. It's very interesting how, how frenemy they are to the European Union. Yeah. They definitely are. So, but they do. Um, when when I was there um, a few weeks ago, they you know most of the most of the stores did take euros. They were not difficult about it, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, it, I I think Britain their model will probably be closer to Norway. I think you're correct in that. It is going to be interesting to see if the if she can salvage the relationship with Scotland. Does Scotland remain a part of the United, United Kingdom well, now that they've Funny you mention that. She spoke with Nicola Sturgeon, the first minister of Scotland, this morning in Holyrood, and they spoke about what the future is between Scotland and the United Kingdom and the European Union. And she was saying, You will definitely have a seat at the table when we do negotiations. Yeah. And I think that was that that's necessary. It'll be interesting to see if that lasts. Um and we'll see what's got, you know, Scotland voted sort of overwhelmingly to stay. And uh, and so we're going to have to see. I don't know. I, I don't even know if the European Union would want Scotland as a separate member state. Right. Because what does that what does that mean if they allow Scotland to be separate from the United Kingdom and then stay a member of the European Union? This now gives the Basque, the Catalonians, it yeah. gives all these different sub ethnic groups of Europe sort of an idea like, hey, we can secede from the countries in which we live in, and mm -hmm. we can still benefit from being part of the European Union. So yep. it's a very interesting situation we're finding ourselves in. I, you know, I really, really press this, and I say this all the time, Scotland should stay part of the United Kingdom. It's one of the poorest countries in Western Europe, and if they leave the, you know, if they leave, uh, the United Kingdom, they're going to become even poorer. They have very few industries there still, and they get so much from London financially speaking uh and everything else they they would it'd be a bad idea for them to leave I, in my sort of perverse opinion on the matter on the other hand you are going to to england at an opportune time given that the rate of the pound as compared to the dollar is at its lowest level since 1985 yes i will take full advantage of that and the yes. euro is not doing all that well so i will try to uh spend my money wisely in uh, ireland yeah, so you know, I I was in in uh, in Britain right right before the vote, so I was not able to take advantage of it. So I hope you will on my behalf. Yeah, and uh, it's it's interesting. We'll have to see what the future holds for the European Union and the United Kingdom. It's going to be very very interesting these next few years. Yeah, I think so. Mm -hmm. Yep. All well, right. I I I, uh, I I wish you uh, an excellent. Uh, journey across the pond. I am Thank you. still jet lagged, but uh, I did cool. rather enjoy my month there, despite um, uh, 
despite some of the issues that were involved with having 22 undergrads following you me around the entire time. You can say it. Kvetching. Kvetching uh, is, is a good yeah. way to put it. I, I sat down. I had the students keep a journal and uh, and the first student sent me her journal this morning and I was looking at the first paragraph and she's complaining about the uh, the flight over on the first day. And I was like, I get to relive all of their complaints day by day by day while oh, reading their God. journals. So I just I just throw it away. I, it was unbelievable. I'm like, you're in, you're in another, you know, you're in Europe for a month. What is there really to complain about? But anyway, apparently, everything. Um, so uh, we will hope that we're able to put up a podcast next week while you're overseas. If not, we'll get one up as soon as we can after you get yes. back. And I promise for the rest of the summer, we will do a much better job of getting things up weekly. Um, I, I'm glad that people are listening and enjoying the podcast. If uh, you have enjoyed it, Please follow us on Twitter, find us on Facebook, and uh, keep those reviews coming. Uh, it makes it easier for people searching to find our podcast when it's been reviewed, and uh, we love seeing all of the, the feedback that you have. So, uh, Jacob, anything else to add before we sign off? Uh, not particularly. Uh, thank you for listening to the podcast, and um, keep listening, and until next time. Yep. Yeah, we will uh, talk to everybody soon. All right.